everybody. Are we enjoying the lusty month of May? Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and artist Karen Blair. I'm Leslie Harris, and I want to announce a slight adjustment to the schedule of the show. I usually drop an episode every other week, but this episode 94 drops on May 20th, and episode 95 will drop on May 27th. The May 27th episode will be short, shorter than normal. It'll just be an interview, but it's very informative because it's with a dear friend whose daughter is getting married in her garden, and it's all about how to prepare and what to think about as you get ready for some sort of garden party. But on to this week, which is a normal longish episode, episode 94, our plant of the week may be the digitalis, blooming very prettily for me right now, but I'm having second thoughts about that choice, possibly because I'll be chatting with Doug Tallamy See, Digitalis isn't a native. <laughs> I'll be chatting with Doug Tallamy about one of his books, Nature's Best Hope, has been rewritten for the non-geezer set. I feel like I know my listeners pretty well, and if you're like me, you can't get enough of Doug Tallamy, but you know his message and you know how important it is already. So the idea of not just preaching to us, the choir, but inculcating an entire new soprano section in the form of children, pure genius. During the playlist, I want to talk about dealing with bulb foliage, saying goodbye to peonies, and starting annuals from seed. Hey, I know you know why alien invasive plants are bad, but just a reminder that because we all want to pitch into this problem of them invading wild spaces, it would be great if you could just keep tabs on your own property and make sure that all the little gems that the birds seem to poop in the form of seeds don't take over your yard and you won't be contributing to the problems of the wild. If you live around here, here being Charlottesville, Virginia, and you're not quite sure what alien invasive plants are most harmful, you're in luck because the Blue Ridge Prism is going to host an in-person workshop on Friday, June 9th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Rockfish Family Trail in Nellysford. And it costs 25 bucks and you can register online and I will put a link in the show notes at lhgardens.com. You know, it's our responsibility to know what's going on within the bounds of the property that we own. I hope for you that what's going on within the bounds of your property is a lot of bird song and bug and small animal activity that's making you happy amongst a nice collection of mostly native plants. That is my hope for you. Okay, so I changed my mind about the plant of the week. I love Digitalis purpurea, which is called foxglove. It's a great plant that doesn't hurt anything, although it does pop up in funny places in your yard if you let it go to seed. Foxglove is not robust enough to spread to wild places where I live, but it is considered invasive in some parts of the northeastern United States, northwest also, and California. So before I move on to the real plant of the week, something that you should know about Digitalis Foxglove is that it is used as a heart medicine because it will slow the heart rate down. If you happen to reside with mammals that enjoy eating plants willy-nilly without caring what they may be, that slowed heart rate would get past the point of good health and to the point of stopping just FYI. And here's me further hoping that amongst your bird song and a nice collection of native plants, that no one in your family, human or otherwise, eats plants that are not food. My goodness, what stress that would promote. So many plants are poisonous. So as much as I love a good foxglove, I simply can't have a non-native for the plant of the week if Doug Tallamy is my guest. So let's change gears and I'm going to choose the Zizia aurea or the Golden Alexander. By the way, If you listen regularly, you know that I am not a slave to growing all native plants, but I like to have a good population of them in my yard, and I like to promote them when I run into one that makes me happy in terms of aesthetics. The golden alexander is an herbaceous perennial that blooms well in sun or shade, 
Zizia aurea is native to eastern Canada all the way down to the southeastern United States. It grows in zones three through eight. It's about three feet tall, about two feet wide, and it blooms a bright yellow in May and June. It can handle some wet soil, but it doesn't need it, so it could be a good addition to a rain garden. It attracts butterflies with its golden umbel flowers. That's the flat top flowers that makes her such a great landing pad for insects. It's in the carrot family. That's your umbelicious look that I'm trying to describe. The foliage is a nice bright green in spring. Doesn't do anything to shake up my life as summer goes on, but still, it's a good ground cover, and those flowers do add a nice dash of color. Zizia aurea is a supply food for swallowtail caterpillars, so that's cool. Try it in a few different parts of your yard. I have it started on a shady hillside under trees and near ever-growing shrubs that provide lots of shade, but I plan to divide it and try it in a bit more sun this summer and see what happens. Oh, also, it's deer-resistant, and I haven't seen my silly rabbits doing any harm, so yeah, Zizia aurea, or Golden Alexander, give it a grow. Hey, I wanted to mention that the smart cookie who commissioned my friend Karen Blair, the Charlottesville artist, to paint her garden came to walk through my garden recently. Her name is Ann Brooks Redsky, and she has a container gardening business up in D.C. Lots of clients in Bethesda and I think some in Chevy Chase. It's called Capital Roots, and it looks like she does a fantastic job with containers. Anyway, Ann Brooks sent Karen Blair some photographs of her garden, and Karen was able to create a masterpiece of strong colors and shapes that totally caught the spirit of the garden. It's a beautiful painting, and you can see it and link to all of Karen's work on the blog that goes with this podcast at lhgardens.com. Coming up, listen to a conversation that I recently had with Doug Tallamy, the entomologist from the University of Delaware and author of four books, one of which, Nature's Best Hope, has been rewritten to capture the attention of children. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie, and I am here with Dr. Douglas Tallamy, who is the rock star of all entomologists. And I'm pretty sure when he was a little boy, that's what he wanted to be. No, actually not. He probably doesn't want to be that. And he certainly didn't plan to be that. But here he is. And the reason that Doug Tallamy is so important to all of us is because he's made it so we can understand what's going wrong and possibly how to fix it. He's done it through wonderful books. And the reason that I wanted to chat with him is because one of his best ones, the first one that I read, Nature's Best Hope has been rewritten by a woman named Sarah Thompson, because Doug doesn't write to middle schoolers. It's been aimed at middle schoolers, so they'll understand what all we old people who have time to think about it know and what Doug has presented to us so well. Doug, thank you for coming to talk with me. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, always a pleasure. So Nature's Best Hope, it was the first one that I read. It was recommended to me by a garden club friend. And of course, I'm probably in my 40s or 50s. And this is these are your people. This is your choir. This is who you're talking to. This is who you're connecting with. And now you want to change that. And it was a great idea of yours or Timber Press to do this. Actually, it was Timber Press. I got to give credit where credit was was due. They They said, let's do a young reader's version. Matter of fact, they had already lined up Sarah and I didn't have much choice in it, but it was a great idea. I mean, people have been saying forever, you've got to reach younger audiences and, you know, you should talk in schools. Well, how many schools are there out there? A hundred thousand or something. <laughs> it just wasn't something I could squeeze in. I was always thinking of making a, a video they could show it at uh, assemblies or whatever they do. Yeah. So I hadn't gotten around to do that. I should still do that. But they said, Let's do a young reader's version. And Sarah rewrote it and I, I edited it and I hope it works. Every once in a while, I wonder, well, what age is she really targeting? But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So, 
when you saw her, you know, what she put together, did you think maybe it was aimed a little too higher than, you know, I think of middle school as being 12 years old, say on average, I was a middle school teacher for years. They can be very sophisticated. They also need direction. Um, and so do you think that this book will, will reach out to a 14 year old or, and possibly go down to an eight or nine year old? What, what are you thinking? I think there are parts that, that are aimed more at eight or nine year old actually. So I don't want it restricted to middle school. It should, it should get down to lower grades too. Okay, that's really good news because I have a passel of grandchildren, but nobody's much over five. You have grandchildren, right? I do. I do. I have nine grandchildren. Holy cow. What's the age span on yours? Keeps changing. <laughs> um, I believe it's eight through 15. Okay. All right. So actually, this is like right in their, you know, bailiwick that they could. In, in the, the lower, lower grades. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what kind of influence do you feel like you've had on them just by being you? <laughs> oh man, these are hard questions. <laughs> you know, I am, I am their grandpa. As a matter of fact, they call me grandpa da. And one group calls me grandpa da ha. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fact that, that he's writing books and, and they know that, but you know, it's the old thing. Prophets never, never loved at home. It's just, it's just something I'm doing. Everybody in the family is doing something. And I don't think it's all that special. But. Oh, okay. All right. So you haven't used them as like your little guinea pigs, like, come on, you people well, follow me. No, I have never said follow me, but I have used their pictures in a number of, of talks and, and the books and they seem to enjoy that. So, you know, child in nature, um, one of the consistent themes, right? As soon as I wrote bringing nature home, onward is people would come up to me and really my audience has always been the retired segment. They've got the time and the money to actually do something. But their first comment is, well, how come we were never taught this? And that's a good question. How come they were never taught this? Well, first of all, we really hadn't put it all together when, when we were kids. So that's a pretty good excuse. There's a little bit more of it in schools now, but um, not nearly enough. And one of the things I've lamented the the whole time is the the low level of the ecological IQ of, of the American public. It is not part of our culture. You know, this is improving, but it has not been part of our culture. I was telling a lady the other day, she was asking me questions. And, and part of the story had to be how many caterpillars does a chickadee eat? Or does, a, does a, any of the birds that are trying to feed their young? Because you need so many caterpillars. I started going on about that. And she said, wait, wait, what's a chickadee? So I realized I had to back up a little yeah. bit there. And that's, unfortunately, that's where so many of us are. A, a, a newspaper guy interviewed me the other day to talk about hummingbirds. He didn't have a clue about hummingbirds, any bird, any plant, any anything. And unfortunately, I think that's that's the standard. So, so getting the knowledge uh, that there is biodiversity out there, that we need it, we're not going to live without it, that insects are important that it does matter when things disappear. It's just not on the horizon. And the most important one is that you as an individual can help solve this biodiversity crisis. If you own land, then you've got a wonderful opportunity. You can, you can change the ecosystem in your yard and you can do it pretty easily. And if you don't own land, you can volunteer and help, help somebody who does or help a land conservancy or something. So there's something everybody can do but only if they realize it's it's one of our number one priorities. It's right there with climate change, the biodiversity crisis, uh, and we still have a long way to go in, in in getting that message across. So this, you know, young readers version, good. We're going to start younger. Yeah, I think it's great.
you're you're cultivating a choir instead of preaching to one that's already been converted. I would say that just in general, just looking at you know the age and the busyness factor of my own kids, they're in their 30s now and they're busy raising these small, impressionable people that we hope to brainwash. I mean, teach. You know, my kids were brought up that nature was good, and then you know I'm constantly in the garden. I didn't even I didn't have any spray bottles of anything. I just wanted to have pretty flowers. It was mostly because I saved my dollars for pretty flowers. I would not spend money on spray bottles. I wouldn't know how to use them. I, I accidentally was good about that from the from the onset. But my son, for example, who saw me year after year after year, if I saw a spider inside the house, I would carefully catch it and put it outside. I was in his house a couple of years ago and his wife glanced at the wall and, and just pointed and he grabbed a paper towel and just smushed a spider and put it in the trash can. And my eyes got big, but I said nothing. I love my son. I love my daughter-in-law. They're wonderful people. And later he said, you might wonder what that was about. Um, you know, she was just raised in a household where that's what you did. And I'm taller and she asked me to do that. And there's so many things that she does for me. And so, you know, marriage is like that. And I said, Okay, <laughs> you know, there's nothing I can do about that. Good news is that that woman's four children are off to school and learning about, like just yesterday, she sent a ton of photographs of her four-year-old boy who is building habitat in his classroom for insects. So I know, isn't that great? The adversarial relationship that we have with bugs who, that you love can be overcome by people who don't even know that it exists, right? That's what education is all about. Um, another thing that is really not on our horizon is the impact of what we do on our property, how that impacts everybody else's right. property, how that impacts your local ecosystem. We've got this idea of private property rights. We're allowed to do anything we want. Although we know inherently you're not allowed to release smallpox spores on your property just because it's your property because it's going to affect everybody else. Well, the way you, the amount of lawn you have, whether you use those pesticides, whether you use the herbicides, which plants you select, whether you kill that spider, all of that affects the local ecosystem that affects everybody else. And sometimes when you when you mess with the watershed, which you do when you have a big lawn, you're affecting a lot of people a long way away. So I, I got this analogy with Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in your, your yard does not stay in your yard. And that we've got to have that in, in our mind all the time. All the time. What I tend to say to listeners is, it's your garden, but it's our watershed. It's not just yours. Yeah. The same person who's going to squish the spider will then hire Mosquito Joe to come fog their entire yard and, and kill all the mosquitoes. Although he doesn't kill all the mosquitoes. He just kills all the insects and the pollinators and the monarchs and everything else. So, you know, we're not putting it together. Put the spider outside. There's an article in New York Times today about uh, the, a great way to remove insects from your, your house without killing them. Oh, I'll have to have a look at that. Yeah. Did you learn anything? I can't believe you would have learned anything. No, I think my wife invented spider removal kits. But <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, I didn't even read it, but it's it's there. I mean, so that's the important thing. I think that's really cool too. And there were articles last fall, the likes of which I had never seen before about leaving the leaves for habitat, about leaving your, you know, your gardens up for habitat. It's, I mean, it's changing. So tell me what your process was in the production of this new book. Did you have to guide her every step of the way or did you just look at it at the end? No, I looked at it at the end. She wrote it and I had to, I had to okay it. I had to edit it, um, make sure she got the the facts right. And she she did a very good job. You know, most of the facts were, were right or very close to right. Um, so I, you know, I had to read everywhere, but I didn't change a whole lot. Uh, she has, she has done this for this age group 
for other books. So she's got a lot more experience in it that way. And, you know, I think of kids the way we were when we were kids. It's a different culture now. They are really different. Uh, and I have to appreciate that, that the people who actually work with young kids know what they're doing. I have been working with, quote, kids my entire career, but they're college kids. And even then, I've seen that they've changed a whole bunch, not necessarily uh, in a positive direction. So how you communicate, you know, right now, communication is all through apps and and uh, texts and <laughs> speaking doesn't count so much anymore. Um, and the things that are important to them, a lot of it's different from when we grew up. So so I gave uh, Sarah a lot, of, a lot of free reign there and said, okay, you know what you're doing. And we're just going to see. You know, the, the message that you want to get across to children, not only is that nature is essential, but also that there's an entertainment value there, that you could turn off your screen and get some fun outside. Do you have, um, do you remember any parts of the book that talked about that? Yeah, we really are born with an inherent, at least interest in the natural world. And our parents can squash that right away. You know, if the mother screams when you're two years old, you remember that. That was, you know, that's got to be bad. Mm. Uh, the entire culture now is all about the helicopter moms that, that hover over their kids with everything. And that imparts the message that, that this is all dangerous. The kids are future stewards of our planet. And if we send that message, they're not going to be very good stewards. Uh, so, yeah, and throughout the book, we tried to, to counter that telling interesting stories. This is what they're doing. This is how the monarch butterfly gets around the, the sticky latex sap that's in milkweed. That's why we call it milkweed. You know, it's got a very interesting behavior. It snips the main midrib of the vein and blocks it. And you can watch this in your own yard. Put the monarch on a new leaf. He will do it right in front of you. When I, even when I was in college and I took my, my very first entomology course and you read about things that would happen at certain times of the year. And then I saw they did happen just as the book said, that was really exciting to me. I don't, I don't know why, but oh, look, this is exactly what they said was going to happen. So I'm hoping that the book will trigger that same reaction uh, if the kids get outside. Yeah, they just need to get out there and, and get into it. If you could lay out for me, and, and I know you've told these stories a million times, the changes that you saw from your property when you first got it, when it was it was mown for hay, correct? Right. And what, what you've done to encourage wildlife and, and the changes that you've seen there. Uh, well, we had to do two things. It was mowed for hay. That was the last thing the farm had had engaged in. It was a very old farm. That area had been farmed for almost 300 years. Uh, and so the soil was exhausted. They weren't getting any more out of it. And then they had cattle on it. And then they gave up with that and, and just mowed it for hay. We live in the mushroom capital of the world. So mowing for hay is really mowing for the mushroom industry. And it doesn't matter what you're mowing. So all the time that they're mowing, the invasive plants, the autumn olive and the multiflora rose and the oriental bittersweet, all that stuff was colonizing. And then they'd mow that too. And you had those big rootstocks there. So when they stopped mowing, when we actually started to build the house, those rootstocks came back like crazy. So step one, we had 10 acres of serious, serious invasion of Asian plants. We had to had to deal with that. We're still dealing with that. I mean, we got rid of all the big guys, but of course, most of the neighbors haven't. So there's colonization every year and we have to have to watch it. Um, but then really the only thing we did was put the plants back. Not all the plants, who knows all the plants that were here 300 years ago, but we put the plants back. I started with the easiest things. And fortunately, the easiest things turned out to be the best things. And that was acorns, oaks. There was a, a tree down the, the street that dropped a bunch of acorns after we moved in. And I gathered them up and I just put them all over the property. 
And then this was early on, so there was very little living there. If I put an acorn out today, a vole or a mouse or a squirrel or a deer or something gets it right away. Yes. So I have to protect it. But back then, there wasn't anything there. All those acorns germinated. Wow. Uh, those trees are now over 60 feet tall. Wow. That was easy and it was free. And it turned out to be, I didn't know this at the time, but, but oaks turn out to be the most powerful plant you can put in your in your landscape for all the things it does. Each landscape has to accomplish four, it's got four ecological goals. It's got to manage the watershed. So the more plants and roots you have out there, the better you're managing the watershed. It's got to support pollinators, not for agriculture, but because they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. It's got to manage the food web. It's got to contribute energy to the food web. And that means you've got to use the native plants that are gonna pass on part of that energy instead of the non-natives that hold it in and nothing can eat them. Uh, and finally, it's got to sequester carbon. It's got to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Those are the four goals of every landscape. Every landscape can do a better job at it, including mine. Uh, but that's the direction we want to go. Lawn does none of those things. So uh, we never did establish a big lawn. Like my neighbor, 10 acres of lawn. Uh, 10 acres? 10 acres? We all had 10 acre lots of this farm. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you had the house grant in the driveway. We also had 32 Bradford pears. Oh. So choosing the right plants, minimizing the amount of lawn. Uh, and really, we practiced addition by subtraction. So what we did was manage the invasives that we didn't want. And then the blue jays and the squirrels and everybody else planted the things that we did want. I have plants and trees where they really shouldn't be. I mean, Blue Jay put a pinnock. I was just looking at it before I got on this Zoom. Right in front of the house. It's way too close to the house. <laughs> but now it's just like 50 feet tall. And oh, no. Was I going to take it down right away? I didn't. Um, and, you know, from that same tree that I can look at right out the window and the branches are there, I watched the cicadas ovipositing on it when they, they came out. Uh, was that two years ago now? I think so. It's all part of my 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 living laboratory here. But yeah, we let nature plant, replant the yard, and which is why people say, do you give tours of your property? People think I have the ideal native plant landscape with a classy design. I do not. I've got a great restoration, <laughs> but um, it's, yeah, probably could have been planned a little bit better. And it, every once in a while, I've got to take something down. As a matter of fact, I do most of my gardening now with a chainsaw. Oh, wow. Because uh, I don't want to lose all my sun. We had a big part of the property was a meadow up top and the eastern red cedars came in and then the black cherries. And so I'm struggling to, to more or less reclaim that. But, you know, the goldenrods came in. A lot of the natives came in on their own. It was just a matter of, of managing the non-natives. And that produced the biodiversity, which I can measure by counting the number of moss species on our yard now. And I'm up to 1,199 species of moss that I've taken pictures of. Wow. As we put the plants back. And, you know, we, we have been here 22 years now. That's a long time, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think, well, it takes 22 years for this to happen. It doesn't. It started to happen immediately. I've got a picture of a, of a white oak I planted from an acorn in my yard. It was three feet tall. And the first branching, there's a field sprout nest right in the crotch there. Uh, and, of course, it was producing caterpillars and feeding those birds right, right from the get-go. Um, so it happens much faster than than people think. And and it's what's happened on our property. And by the way, we just got our 61st uh, record of, of birds breeding on our property. 61 species wow. have, have bred on our property. 
which shows when you put the bird food back, the birds, the birds come. Yeah. So that's been the impressive part is to see all the things that have come to this, this little 10 acre Island Mm -hmm. because we put the plants back. And all I can think of is what would happen if everybody put the plants back? Exactly. So, so this is your gift because you have this gift of talking to big groups. Have you had any success or do you have any suggestions to not become that social pariah of the neighborhood and actually address this with neighbors? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, that's a very, very common question I get. How do we, how do we do it without being thrown out in the neighborhood? And, and how do we convince the neighbors to do it as well? And of course, there's several approaches to that. You're talking about changing the culture. How do you change the culture of your neighborhood? The most powerful tool you have in changing that culture is peer pressure. We do what our peers want us to do because we want to be accepted into the group. Now, dozens of studies have shown that. But right now, the culture says, you know, nature's bad, nature's someplace else, and neat is good. And if you're not neat, and if you don't have a big lawn, if you don't have all the same Asian plants, you're going to lower property value. So the biggest threat to your neighbor is lowering the property value. So what we have to do is show that a well-designed landscape where you replace the Asian plants with native plants, your neighbor won't even know that because he doesn't know one plant from another. Sure. But you use them tastefully. You're creating a model that will demonstrate to your neighbor you have not lowered the property values. And the ideal situation is you create a model that is something your neighbor actually wants. I've had people write to me and said, I'm known as the butterfly lady because all the kids in the neighborhood run down to my house to see the butterflies. Well, that's attractive to uh, a lot of people. But there are definitely things we need to do. I say reduce the area of lawn, but I don't say get rid of lawn right. because lawn is a cue for care. It is it is definitely part of the culture. And if you totally get rid of lawn from your suburban yard, you look really different. And that's that's a threat. I want to reduce the area that's in lawn, but the lawn you keep is going to be manicured. You're still going to be mowing it. A lot of people have the idea that native plant landscaping is no landscaping. You just don't do anything. Not so. Uh, it needs needs to be managed. You need to be keeping those those uh, invasive plants out. So lawn can be used as a cue for care by including one or two mower strips of, of lawn outlining new flower beds. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I suggest, uh, and we've shown is very important for the caterpillars that are developing on a tree, they need a place to pupate under that tree. So I want people to create beds under their trees right out to the drip line mm-hmm. instead of having lawn right up to the tree, which everybody knows is bad for the tree. The tree doesn't like that. Right. So that reduces the area of lawn right there. And you end up with this these swaths of grass that go through your landscape. It guides you. You can actually go out and walk in your yard without getting sunburn. That strip of grass along the sidewalk or along the driveway. Um, when it's mowed and manicured, it shows that you understand what the culture is. You haven't moved out. You haven't abandoned it. You're not, you're not lower class. Uh, and when done well, it's, it's beautiful as, as well. And at the same time, you are accomplishing a, a really important goal that your neighbors are not accomplishing. And you can accentuate that with a, a little sign. That's what all these, these habitat signs are that people can get, the National Wildlife Federation. You can get a homegrown national park sign. And so people understand there's a goal here. There's a reason I'm doing this a little bit differently. But the big difference here is simply I have more plants in my yard than you do. Now, they're different plants, too, but people don't know that. No, they don't know. So you're saying leading by example as opposed to conversations. Leading by is one good thing. A lot of people are having book clubs. You know, they're taking one one of my books. They have a book club and they discuss it. That's a way to, to get 
information out oh, to yeah. your neighbors. And a lot of people complain about their HOAs, their homeowners associations, you know, don't let them do this. And I encourage people to join their homeowners association. These are people, they're your neighbors who are concerned about that property value. So you have to educate them, give them examples of how well this can be done, how it's not going to lower the property value when it's properly done. As a matter of fact, there's also a lot of studies that show trees added to properties increase the property value. I can imagine. Hands down. You know, when you've got trees, that property is worth more. So, so it's nonsense that it's going to lower the, the property value. There's a lot of urban legends, you know, not based on anything. So if, if you have plants in your yard, you're going to have rats and snakes and all kinds of other things. Um, you know, there's no, especially the rat part. Yeah. I mean, snakes, I would welcome. Rats, Rats not so much. <laughs> it's a Norwegian, you know, pest that lives in our sewers eating our garbage. I mean, it has yeah. nothing to do with native plants. So um, so we do have to to set the record straight when we when we get a chance. But joining the homos association, educating them from within. Uh, and I'm getting emails now from people who've done that say that works. It works. And you probably saw the couple in Maryland that sued their their yes. HOA. That was big. And, and one. And one. That was big. And good on them for taking the trouble. You could easily have said, oh, this isn't the neighborhood for us. But they really fought it and, and with good results. So when you wrote Nature's Best Hope, you had a chapter that sort of previewed your homegrown national park. How was that chapter addressed in the children's version? Was it the same sort of thing where you just sort of outlined this is what you could do? How did you, how'd that go? Yeah, same chapter, just rewritten for kids and, you know, emphasizing uh, this is where the fun part comes in. You get to create a national park in your yard. You get to to follow what's happening in that park. You get to have a huge influence on addressing this biodiversity crisis. In other words, it empowers the child that's reading this. And they're in an age where they love that. Oh, yeah. I get control over something. Yeah. Even if mommy and daddy don't want to do this, I want to do this. Give me a little piece of the of the yard. And it can be little. You know, put put an aster in a flower pot. That is good enough. You can be a member of Homegrown National Park because the monarch can fly by and use that. And so within the native bees. So it's it's really just formalizing the things you can do to increase biodiversity in your yard that one child can do. They can change the light bulb from a white bulb to a outside, from a white bulb to a yellow bulb. And that'll decrease the number of insects that you kill or turn the light off. Yeah. Anybody can do this. You know, it's not not very hard. All right. So great. So that chapter is there. And then just so people, I know that everybody who's listening to this probably knows about the Homegrown National Park. I'm on. Um, it is very easy to join. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's, as you said, it could be that pot with an aster in it on your balcony, or it could be full on, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once. This is not a huge ask, right? Yeah. And, and you don't even have to do it all before you join Homegrown National Park. So first of all, it's free. So, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. We're not pulling members away from Audubon or National Wildlife Federation or anything else. So you're still a member of those groups. Well, what we want to do is get that successful conservation you are doing on your private property, get it on the map so that we can see how well we're really doing. We can see where there's big gaps in between uh, places where that have some, some habitat. You know, it's obvious we're in the sixth grade extinction event right now, even though we've got parks and preserves. So they're not enough. We've got to do conservation outside of parks and preserves. That's on private property. 
And that's why we've got to get those private property owners to join Homegrown National Park and start to convert it. So you're making a commitment that this is in the back of my mind. When I plant a new tree, it's going to be a good native tree. If a tree dies, I'm going to replace it with something that's that's uh, contributing energy to local food webs. Maybe I'll, I really will reduce the area of lawn. Maybe I really will get rid of those burning bushes and, and Bradford pears and things that are serious invasives. Um, barberry, porcelain berry, these things that are really transforming our, our natural areas. There's a lot of things people can do. Um, so if you add up the major national parks in the country, it's still less than 20 million acres. And I came up with the 20 million acres because uh, in 2005, a woman did a study looking at the number of acres of lawn that we have in this country. And in 2005, it was 40 million acres. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about 44 million acres. So it's still growing, which is an area bigger than all of New England combined, dedicated to lawn, which is an ecological deadscape. So I'm saying... What if we cut that area in half? What if we really did reduce the amount of, of lawn that we had? All kinds of benefits to doing that. That's where we can come up with this, this figure that is going to create the biggest national park in the country if it's 20 million acres in, in size. We don't want to stop at 20 million acres, by the way. There's a lot more land out there than, than that, but it's a good starting point. So I, I know that your uh, your time is very precious, but just leave us with a few thoughts on what what your hopes are for this new edition of this book. Uh, my hope is to jump down a generation or two generations into helping us change the overall culture. I don't want the person who's who's interested in saving biodiversity to be an outlier. I want them to be the, the, the in-group. It's going to be what everybody does. And the person who doesn't help biodiversity is going to be the outlier. If we don't include kids in this, it's not going to work. We're not going to rely only on kids. A lot of people say, dress the kids and they'll do it in the future. Yeah, you're going to do it in the future. That's good. But we can't wait a whole generation. So we're not letting the old folks off the hook here. <laughs> we need everybody, everybody at once. And if it's if it's not in our school system, it certainly isn't part of our culture. So it's part of this changing the culture that we should no longer have an adversarial relationship with nature. We need to have a collaborative one. We can't live without nature. We are part of nature, I think. We are part of nature. We depend on it. Uh, so it's essential to our future survivorship. And, and if that's not part of our education, there's a serious problem. Doug, thank you so much. I'm so excited about Nature's Best Hope. You always fill me full of hope when I listen to you speak. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk about what to do in your garden this week. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to you at your house. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties and old favorites. And their website makes plant shopping easy because you can use filters to figure out things like zone and light and color. And once you're ready to order, they let you select your own shipping date at checkout so you can schedule ahead of time. If you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, you cannot worry about shipping plants in the mail because they're going to arrive in great condition, but they're guaranteed. And as a listener to the show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. So visit greatgardenplants.com, shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE for 10% off and happy gardening. So Doug Tallamy, he has a gift of making it so that we all understand better what we have to do. The trouble is that he needs to get his word out to more people. So I think it's fantastic that this step has been made for the younger generation. I also think it would be good if he got a film out for schools. We need as many people as possible to understand what's going on here and that it isn't good. Just in case you're new to Talamy's work, 
and you would like a few ideas on how to contribute, here's a quick list of what you can do very simply and easily on your property. One, no herbicides, no pesticides, because you know now what happens on your property doesn't stay on your property. That goes for alien plants that are happy to explore outside of your property lines, get them out of your yard, and they won't have as many chances to multiply. No lights on at night unless you feel like they're essential. Lights attract bugs, bugs die. Even if the lights are essential, you know they could be hooked up to motion sensors and they can have yellow bulbs. If you have an outdoor cat, put a bell on the collar. Songbirds are more and more in short supply. Please be aware that mosquito fogger services do not kill just one kind of insect. And they also don't work because mozzies can fly from up to a mile away to sample your epidermis. I'm sorry, I hope nobody who's listening like has a dear relative who owns one of those services, but they're, they're, they're not good. And native plants have a nice population, but be aware that large native trees solve all the problems that we hostel lovers present by liking our fun things that are from Asia, while a 50-foot oak tree is going to relieve you of your duty almost by itself. I had a fun walk around the garden with a listener named Jenny Kovac recently. She came to visit friends in the area this week, and Jenny began her gardening in California, but has recently settled in Nashville and is beginning to garden there. She brought her friend Leslie Shear. It was fun to share my messy garden with them, and I even shared some plants. Mind you, she did smother me... Mind you, she did smother me with flattery about the podcast and additionally brought up a bottle of Tennessee whiskey, which made it even easier to do the deal. But I thought I would list the plants that I gave her because they're all things that grow extremely well for me. And in short order, they've become really good sharing plants because, well, they could actually use some editing in my garden now. So with this list, you get plants that do spread, but not obnoxiously, and they don't invade wild spaces. And I love them all. Okay, for deep shade, there was Japanese fern and ostrich fern. For dapple shade, polygonatum, you know, which they call Solomon seal, the begonia grandis, and heuchera, the, my favorite type is autumn bride, which is a bright spring green, and it spreads a little bit. And then for sun or partial shade, Japanese anemone and comfrey. The botanical name for that one is Symphytum officinale. And which of these plants on that lovely sharing list is native to the good old USFA? Um, not many, unfortunately. Just the Heuchera villosa autumn bride and the ostrich fern. But they're all lovely sharing plants. Hey, let's talk for a minute about saying goodbye to bulb foliage. Now is the time when your mass plantings of daffodils are not, just not, bringing joy to your heart because... It's just splayed green foliage, and you might want to stick some zinnias in there, and there's not even any space to do it. If you want your daffodils or other spring flowering bulbs to get fed properly from the sun, you got to leave the foliage until it starts to wither. Don't fold it up. Don't braid it. Otherwise, you might just as well cut it off because the energy from the sun needs to get to the roots, and your crazy housekeeping, and by the way, formerly that was my crazy housekeeping, I used to do that stuff, but now I understand the system better. Anyway, tying up those stems will keep the vascular tubes, which are called phloem, from doing their job, which is to get the energy from the sun down to the roots, the bulbs of the plant. I have heard evidence that once the foliage is actually down on the ground, not sticking up, but maybe still green, you are good to go on getting rid of it. This makes sense to me because of what I just said about braiding it and the crazy housekeeping stuff. The conduit, the phloem, 
would be bent in such a way that the food from the sun probably wouldn't flow very well to the roots through that vascular system, if you see what I mean. Anyway, many parts of my garden look like a dog's breakfast right now because of bulb foliage, but you just have to put your patience hat on and wait. Finger combing it all in one direction so that it's not at least completely crazy could help you, but don't go too hard on it because of what I talked about about breaking down that system. Once it's down and once it's brown, there's certainly no reason to have it around. And I tend to get rid of it even before it's brown. I know that's cheating, but I do. How about saying goodbye to peonies? Mine are almost finished flowering now, and this is a plant that I definitely deadhead. Peonies do produce seeds, and I find a few little seedlings in my garden from time to time when I've missed a deadheading moment. And that's kind of fun to come across, but those little fellows don't bloom for years. Well, for me anyway. So my druthers is to deadhead, and when I do, I reach pretty far back on that branch that held the flower so that I don't see the cut that I made. Then my peony becomes a boring green mass for the next couple of months, uninteresting but inoffensive, until the foliage becomes crispy and sometimes even mildewy. I have no qualms about cutting that look away in August or September. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about starting annuals from seed, Depending on where you live, your soil might be warm enough to be happy to germinate some zinnias, cosmos, marigolds. I mean, those easy seed annuals that make it difficult for us to justify having bare spots in the garden in July. So get out those seed packets and have a good time. I'm a bit of a control freak, so I always start them in trays or pots, and then I put them exactly where I want them. But if your preference is to sprinkle them around like so much Parmesan on a good pasta dish, I bet your garden is better looking than mine for it. And what to listen to? I would say Ed Sheeran's new album. It's called Subtract, and that dude is talented. Okay, we've done it again. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out to me on Instagram. I am Leslie Harris LH. My website is lhgardens.com, and please go there and have a look at the blog that accompanies the podcast. Add your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help me support the podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. Oh, by the way, Color Blends is a third-generation company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. I am loving all the alliums that are sprinkled all over my yard, and I got all those bulbs from Color Blends. I named the show Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm really into my garden. I want to get you into yours. And I'll see you next week for our chat with my friend Robin on how to get a garden ready for a wedding or whatever big party you have planned. 